Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Our Right Stories, a podcast created and developed by the Just Right Scotland team with your host, Natalia. To start off our second season, we have a special three-part episode series that looks into the Human Rights Bill in Scotland. This long-awaited bill is now in its consultation process. In this three-parter, we are going to explain what a consultation phase is, what is and isn't in the Human Rights Bill, and how this will impact our rights and the following steps that happen after this phase. We are focusing on this topic as part of a national campaign which aims to raise awareness about hashtag all our rights in Scotland and why access to justice is a fundamental aspect of this new bill. We also provide other organizations involved in this consultation process with information, useful and detailed analysis about these proposals, and how this represents an opportunity to build a better future for all in Scotland, together. So let's welcome back our guest speaker. You may recognize the voice, Barbara Bolton, our legal director and partner at Just Right Scotland. Thank you again, Barbara, for joining us on Our Right Stories. Today we have a topic about the Scottish Human Rights Bill, and I have a feeling that there are going to be a lot of like additional questions and stuff because I know absolutely nothing about this bill, and I'm, I'm so curious to learn more about it. Um, and I know right now they're in the phase of running consultations. So why does the government run consultations? And how does the consultation fit into the process of how new laws are made? Hi, Sorry. thanks for having me again. It's <laughs> lovely to see you. Jump right in. <laughs> um, and this is a great topic to chat through. Um, so thanks for confirming that you're starting from a position of not really knowing much at all. So that's really useful to know. Um, so there isn't really, there isn't a, there isn't a specific written law around consultations. There isn't a piece of legislation that says this is when a consultation must be run and this is how it needs to be done. You you find the rules for that through court decisions and what we call the common law. Um, but it really comes from the principle of fair process that applies to everything in government and meaning government in the broadest possible sense, covering the government itself, the, the executive, the, the Scottish government and the UK government, but also covering the parliaments, the UK parliament, Scottish parliament, and then everything through um, local government as well. There's this general principle of fair process. And in relation to legislation, I think there's now really a general requirement to consult because it's become the practice and it's now expected. Um, There's a legitimate expectation, generally really, especially in in Scotland, I would say, that there will be public consultation wherever possible. And um, the courts have, have drawn out some general rules around it so there was a decision just last year from the court of session scotland's highest civil court um confirming that that where there is a reasonable where there is a legitimate expectation that there will be a consultation um they need to consult early enough in the process so that the the input that they get can truly inform what comes out at the other end. So it can't just be 
um, you know, the government deciding it's going to pass a law and what that law will look like and what it'll contain. And then at the last minute, let's just put out for a quick consultation and not really take into account what comes back. That, that can't be how it works. It needs to be a genuine consultative exercise. They need to lay out what they're proposing. It needs to make sense and it needs to be backed up with reasons and enough of an explanation so that people who want to give their views on it are really able to do that. They're really able to assess what the government's proposing to do and why and respond to that. And through the consultation, they get input from anyone who wants to give input, um, from civil society, from academics, from lawyers, from anyone with an interest in the topic. And there should be enough time so that that can, that can be assessed, can be analysed and in a meaningful way taken into account in what they end up producing in terms of legislation. Um, so I would say now, although this isn't necessarily set out in a, in a specific bit of law or a specific piece of legislation, I would say it's probably the case that there's a, a general requirement that you must consult for any new law um, unless that is impossible. So there might be circumstances where really fast laws have to be brought in in an emergency situation, for example, and maybe, yeah, you couldn't consult then. But even in in during COVID, we saw consultations, um, fast and limited as they were, they, they did consult on things like the introduction of vaccine passports and that sort of thing. Um, so I think there's a general understanding now that consultations are the norm, they are required, um, and it's part of making good law. Yeah, so just so I can re- reiterate a little bit, um, so like, I guess in, Scot- in terms of Scotland, then they try to do consultations pretty much at the beginning, um, rather than like it being like, oh, we're proposing all these things, you have X amount of time to feed in. Is is that what you're saying generally happens in Scotland? Or? Well, what I was saying is what the general rules are, gotcha. and then there's what does happen in practice and what happens in practice varies varies piece by piece in terms Mm -hmm. of legislation in some cases you see really early consultation on an idea on a general idea or a general proposition and we're thinking of legislating about this issue what do you think and then maybe a set of questions generally around that um and then maybe further on in the process Okay, so we've developed our thinking on this and we do propose now to bring a law and this is what we're generally thinking that law might cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think about that? And then maybe a bit further in the process, in some cases, you could have a draft draft bill, a draft piece of legislation. Here is what we're actually proposing to put to the Scottish Parliament. What do you think about this? Um, And it really depends. It's like a case-by-case thing whether... You know, what kind of consultation you get, at what stage, how long you get, um, and how thorough it is in terms of um, obtaining input and then allowing enough time for a real analysis of the input and really responding to that. Um, and you have to look at 
each case to really assess to what extent do we consider that it was done thoroughly enough. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, that definitely clarifies it. Um, So in the Scottish Human Rights Consultation, can you explain a little bit what this is about? Yeah, this consultation follows a number of years work looking at the possibility of incorporating into Scottish law a number of international human rights. Um, So the First Minister, uh, when it was Nicola Sturgeon, set up an advisory group to start looking at that uh, a few years back, I think 2018, um, to start considering how we might go about doing that and what those rights should, should be, which rights should be included and some general principles that, that ought to be covered and to make a set of recommendations. And they did, and they reported on that. And then what followed was a task force was set up, which again, um, a group of of interested parties, including the Scottish government itself, and that it would take advice from academics and lawyers and NGOs, charities, civil society, and lived experience, that it would have a, a lived experience board, um, and and look at this in more detail and produce again a set of recommendations, which it did in, I think, March 2021. And it produced 30 recommendations and it recommended that we incorporate a range of human rights that are not yet part of our national law. There are two main strands to human rights. There's civil and political rights, and there are economic, social, cultural, and environmental rights. And they're thought of in two strands because they work a bit differently, but also because they were set out together as a a whole body of human rights laws initially in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which came just after the Second World War and was really the international community coming together and saying, these are the basic minimum rights that belong to every human being that that derive from the inherent worth of the human person, regardless of any individual characteristics that you might have, regardless of where you happen to be born or live, we are all innately inherently entitled to all of these things and that covered every aspect of life Um, and so civil and political rights such as rights that come into play when you interact with the criminal justice system or um, the basic right to liberty that nobody should have their liberty liberty denied without due process and and clear laws and a good reason um the right to freedom of expression to associate with other people and to protest the right to freedom from torture but equally the right to adequate housing adequate food clothing the right to education rights related to work the right to engage in cultural life and the right to a healthy environment. All of those rights are equal and you have to have them all 
all of them have to be upheld in order for any one of them to be fully upheld. So they are universal, they apply to everybody, but they're also interconnected, interdependent, indivisible. Um, And yet, the way international human rights law developed from there, they went down slightly different paths. So a couple of decades later, after the Universal Declaration, they created binding treaties, which are kind of like international contracts um, that, that states or governments can sign up to. And they had two separate ones, one on civil and political rights, one on economic, social and cultural rights, which also covers environmental rights. Um, and although the UK, for, ex- for example, and relevant to us, signed up to both, and that committed it to both at the international level, it had quite a different perspective on the two sets of rights. And partly that's because the civil political rights were seen as reflecting to a large extent what we already had in the sense that civil and political rights were already part of our own laws and our culture and our, and we had a good understanding of those rights and that's not to say we were fully complying with them but um, they were familiar they were understood and they were accepted and the UK and other um, similar countries would see themselves as having been leaders in that process of those rights becoming part of international human rights law drawing on their own national experience Economic, social and cultural rights, environmental rights, were seen quite differently. Although they were part of this body of rights that was drawn up, and although they were signed up to, earlier on they were seen by many as merely aspirational. That, yes, of course, we want everyone to have good housing or um, education or clean water, but we don't accept that those are enforceable rights in the same way. And partly that was just about a mindset, really, um, and a lack of familiarity with those rights. When I studied human rights law for the first time, which is probably the best part of 30 years ago now, there was still quite an active debate internationally among academics and human rights lawyers and governments about whether or not economic, social, cultural, environmental rights could really be enforced in the same way as civil and political rights. That's changed a lot in the last 30 years. There's been a huge amount of progress and now there's much more awareness of what's happening in other countries that are not necessarily part of this set of wealthy so-called western countries um, where perhaps economic, social, cultural, environmental rights were more understood and applied in their national systems already which maybe was where the drive partly came from for them to feature in that universal declaration at the very start 
of the international human rights system um and in countries like south africa some parts of um south america and other countries there has been much more recognition of the status of those rights as equal and that they can and should be enforced in exactly the same way applying slightly different principles because they are different in nature but upholding them to the same extent and we're now able to draw on their experience and their case law um, to say these rights can be enforced these are what you would call justiciable that including in court you can point to these rights as actual entitlements that can be assessed that you can assess the state against or the government against and say you've failed in this particular way and you need to take action to to resolve that to sort that out um however the uk government although it's nearly 50 years since it signed up to that treaty that international contract it has resisted throughout all of the calls on it to bring that into its national law. So some countries have a legal system that's called a monist system and where they sign up to international treaties, the rules they sign up to kind of automatically flow through to their national law. They just become part of their national law with a similar status to the laws that their own legislator creates. Um, and those rights can be enforced in their national courts in the same way as a right that's created in a domestic law, in a law through its own parliament. The UK doesn't have that kind of system. The UK has what's called a dualist system. And that, <laughs> and that means, I know, <laughs> that means um, that although our government signed up to this international treaty 50 years ago and so on the international level it's bound by that it's committed to that and theoretically can be held to account for failing to comply with that it's not part of our national law and we can't use it in our national courts and we can't hold them to account for failure internally um and on the international level, there are mechanisms for holding them to account. There are committees for each of these treaties and they're able to highlight where there are failures. Um, but the influence that they can have is more to hold them to account through shaming them, basically. And that only works to the extent that a government can be shamed. <laughs> so if you have a government that doesn't really care, uh, isn't too concerned about its reputation in that way or, or, or feels that we can just stand above that and ignore that, or in some cases perhaps even sees that as a badge of honor, yeah, it kind of reminds me of like a do as I say, not as I do kind of thing that yeah. you're growing up. Yeah, because they want the recognition that they've signed up to these treaties and we're upholders of human rights, but then in actual fact, they, in some cases, are not prepared to actually um, put that into practice. 
So that's how it works on the international level. For some countries and for some governments, the the work of the committees, the reports, the highlighting of specific breaches can be very effective. Because if you have a government that's saying, I'm an upholder of human rights, um, and you want to be able to maybe criticise other countries for their human rights failures, then it can be problematic if this international body is coming in and saying, but you yourself are breaching the following rights in the following ways. But it only goes so far. What's important for a country like the UK with this dualist system is that we bring those international treaty rights into national law because then they have a, have a status internally that's the same as any other right in law. And it means that we can use them and we can enforce them. Um, and so we did that for the first time in 1998 with the Human Rights Act. So the European Convention on Human Rights is similar to the International Treaty on Civil and Political Rights. It's, it mainly covers those civil and political rights. It doesn't really cover the other treaty, the economic, social, cultural, and environmental rights. And in 1998, we brought that treaty, most of it, we left out quite significant pieces, I would say, but we brought most of it into UK national law and it applies in Scotland uh, as it does in the rest of the UK. The UK government has resisted calls on it to incorporate the Treaty on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and it continues to do that and there is no sign whatsoever of that changing. You never know. Uh, but right now, that's the position we're in. And in fact, beyond saying they won't incorporate, um, this current government has expressed itself most recently in a consultation it did on what it called a Bill of Rights, uh, which was actually going to pull apart the Human Rights Act and undermine our incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights. In that consultation, totally gratuitously, because it wasn't really relevant, they have a little box out where they lay out their view on economic, social, cultural and environmental rights and reiterate that these are not really rights, these are just aspirations and it wouldn't be appropriate to bring them into our national law and make them enforceable. And they went so far as to, to try to taint them um, by saying these are Marxist and they come from the Soviet Union. Um, and you could have a whole debate. I'm sure people who know a lot more about it than me could have a debate about whether that is should be seen as an insult or not, but it's oh. certainly in their view an insult. <laughs> um, and a way in their view of undermining that set of rights and trying to um, really stand very far apart from them. And so that's where we are at, at the moment. And so this bill, one of the main things this bill will do um, is bring those rights, those economic, social, cultural, environmental rights into Scottish law because we have devolution, because the Scottish Parliament has powers under devolution that mean that even if the UK won't do it, we can do it. And that's complicated because we can only do it insofar as we have devolved powers. Mm. Um, that makes the project 
incredibly difficult, Mm -hmm. but not impossible, certainly achievable. It just means that there needs to be a really careful working through of the bits we can incorporate and the bits we can't. But particularly in that context where the UK level government is saying no way, to have a Scottish government say, yes, we can do this, is so positive. Um, It has to be welcomed, it has to be commended, and it has to be encouraged. And I think it's really important to say that because we hear from sort of colleagues and in other countries and particularly other parts of the UK who are looking on at this process and saying, well, we would really like to see that in our area. And we hope that Scotland doing this will set a good example that will then flow through to other areas or put more pressure on them to do it. Um, And I think because we and others in Scotland are so close to this and it is really important that we push the Scottish government to go as far as possible. The, the, the big sort of overarching positive can maybe be a bit lost. So I don't want to overlook that. I think it is highly significant that they're going to do this. And if this bill was to proceed as they've just announced that it will be introduced before summer 2024, this part of it, the incorporation of economic, social, cultural, environmental rights, the right to healthy environment, the right to an adequate standard of housing, the right to health, the right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. is so important and it's so positive that we're going to see that. And I just want to be clear about that before I then critique some of the areas where we are really disappointed and underwhelmed by the consultation. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's a very good place to start because, you know, it almost to me listening to this and learning a little bit about it, you're kind of setting me up to want to grab for like the the highest fruit possible. Like that's kind of I feel like a good intention to start because I think like you're saying, it sounds like Scotland's trying to also be kind of like the lead for this to possibly spread to other parts of the UK and other places. Thanks, Barbara, for this introduction into the consultation process and how essential this bill will be in relation to our rights. Join us again next week as we dig more into the specifics of what is currently being proposed in the bill and some major gaps. Like always, listeners, don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget you can always listen back to season one on our Podbean website any podcast streaming services, and also make sure to follow our social media pages. And we'll catch you next time.